When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. We never ask people when they turn up in a car accident at a public hospital, how much do you earn? And that will determine how much we're going to make you pay. We don't do it when you turn up at a doctor's surgery. And we don't say only certain kids get support at public schools. I mean, this is the type of mind shift we we have to make. Hello, lovely people of podcasts, and welcome to another episode of Australian Politics Live. You are with Catherine Murphy, who is the political editor of Guardian Australia, and delightfully in the studio with me, I have Amanda Rishworth, who is the Shadow Minister for Early Childhood. Amanda, help me out. Early Childhood Education and Development. We'll just go with Thank that. Thank you. I was <laughs> going to say childcare, but it's not. it doesn't really encompass the range of your responsibilities. So yeah, that's it. Anyway, so I've brought Amanda in this week because very recently people will know that Labor outlined the first significant child Mm -hmm. care policy since the last federal election that happened in the budget reply week a couple of weeks ago. And there's lots to talk about with that policy and with the issues more generally surrounding childcare and women's participation in the labour market and recovery strategies from COVID. There's a bunch of things anyway that I wanted to kick around. But I won't assume that everybody listening is across Labor's childcare policy to begin with. So Amanda, why don't we start there? Love, what did you what was yeah. what's the offer? So what we really offered was really two parts. Um, first is kind of an immediate boost for families. And that has a couple of elements to it. First, we're going to raise the highest level of childcare subsidy for the lowest income earners to 90%. Um, At the moment, it sits at 85%, but we want to raise that. The second thing we're going to do, though, is smooth the subsidy tapering. So at the moment, as you earn more, you actually get a reduced subsidy, and that varies depending on your income. It's very lumpy. So you have these big cliffs that as women earn more, the subsidy drops really quickly. So what we're suggesting is lifting the subsidy for everyone, tapering it more slowly, and also removing the annual cap. So at the moment, if a family combined income earns more than $189, then once they... $189,000. $1,000, sorry, $189,000, then they actually then have a cap on how much childcare 
subsidy they get in a year, which is just over $10,000. So that is seen along with the other sort of tapering issues as the really big workforce disincentives. So that's what we're suggesting in the first three years. But then we really want to look at a pathway to 90% universal subsidy for families. Now, that's hard to design from opposition. So we are going to get the Productivity Commission to work on a pathway towards that. How, how would how would that look like? How would we get there? So the other key elements, one other element of our policy, because of course, one of the concerns always with providing higher government subsidies like we are is, you know, especially in the area of childcare and other other sort of areas of government service where the private sector runs it is how do you keep a lid on it? And so what we've said is we're not going to wait for the Productivity Commission to do the work on, we're going to get the ACCC to do that work, you know, basically on our election if we are successful to actually look at how we do price regulation in the childcare area. And is that price regulation and, and I presume making sure that when you up the subsidy, the childcare centres just don't trouser it? Right. That's correct. And making sure that they don't just take the increase in subsidy, that it goes into families' pockets, but importantly, some transparency around this stuff. I mean, when you talk sometimes to some providers, you get a whole range of different answers and there is no transparency. And the ACCC has the powers for some of that transparency and that's what we want to work towards. So making sure parents get the immediate subsidy, getting some transparency, but also looking at price regulation. Okay. And it begs an obvious question, this policy, because Labor took a quite ambitious childcare policy to the last federal election as well. And we had a similar sort of dynamic, I mean, in the in the politics more broadly, right, where, you know, the government was sort of on-brand Liberals and Labor was on-brand Labor in terms of, you know, we, we've got a, a view that it's an appropriate role for government to kind of invest more substantially in services for, for a bunch of reasons, right? Didn't work at the last election, why do you think it might work this time? Well, look, I think this time we've done some very detailed policy analysis. We've built the momentum within the community. So I think families more than ever are feeling it as they are looking to perhaps take up more work in the COVID recovery. So I think families are looking at this and thinking, I need to get this to work. I think businesses are really, as they recover as well, want the most productive workers. They want the best workers and don't want the affordability of childcare to get in the way. And there's been increasing calls there. There's been more research come out as well, more economic modelling, most recently by KPMG, as well as the Grattan Institute, just demonstrating this workforce disincentive that has been built into the system. So I think we've really crystallised the problems a lot better with the current system. And now what what we've done is proposed a solution. So I, I think that you know, in politics, you really do have to crystallise the problem. I think we've done a good job a- about doing that this time and-, and providing a solution in response to that. Does it give you the shits not to put too fine a point on it? You're you're a working mum yourself and your husband has given you a lot of support in your career. We have a universal health system. We have a universal education system. No one sits around, you know, sort of stroking their chins saying, oh, my, how how absurd. But with childcare, you always get into this welfare trap, right? That it's sort of like that somehow this is sort of doing a favour for women or, you know, I, look, 
put whatever construction you want around it, right? It's sort of taken a while, and I just picking up what you said, right, about sort of laying the groundwork better and identifying the problem better. It has taken, I think, quite a long time to start having a, a conversation with any gravity around the idea of this being a productivity and participation issue. Like that, it, it just seems to have taken ages to get there. Um, uh, absolutely. And I have do, been... Do, do you know why? I, look, people have asked me that. I've had journalists that for the first time are looking at this and they've actually set, scratched their head and said, why are we having a debate about this? We don't have a debate about the construction of roads. It's a bipartisan thing. Why is there a debate about this? And I, I think society has sort of seen caring historically as a women's issue and historically children as a family issue. But I think um, more and more the evidence has been very clear that, you know, we've got to take responsibility as a society. And I think that argument was made for things like Medicare. Obviously, there's an individual benefit by having good health, but there's also a societal benefit from having a healthy society. And, you know, the same argument is for higher education. For, for public schooling. So I think it has taken a while to recognise little children a, as being in the same boat. And I think it's a combination of women's caring and their responsibility. But also, I think we haven't always seen little children as people in their own right, actually, and their right to have an early education as well. So I think there's two things happening here. There's more, I think, response for the, the children themselves, but also a more, I think, more recognition that there is public public benefit mm, public for that education, public good. It. Yeah. But it, it, like sticking with universality, which is where you're going in a policy sense, right? You haven't committed to mm. doing that now. You're saying you know, let's get the Productivity Commission to have a look at it. The main barrier to entry there is cost. Now, I mean, uh, let's not have this conversation absent the benefit, right? All the modelling I've seen suggests that there's a big GDP boost to the, uh, in, enhanced female participation in the labour market. It's not all cost, right? But it's big bucks, right? Yes. So yep. where, where do the big bucks come from, Amanda? Well, I guess, I mean, I guess in terms of Labor's plan, I mean, just our first three years, Grattan has modelled it and looks at an 11% participation boost. Now, I know those in the budget don't count the extra taxes that come from that into into necessary offsetting that. But, you know, we're, we're spending a lot of money at the moment on things that are meant to grow our economy. And the return from this early investment, there's there's different numbers around, but effectively for every dollar you invest, you get a $2 return for the economy. So, And so you're saying, yes, it's big bucks, but that's but the big bucks coming into Commonwealth coffers as well. So maybe the big bucks are not quite as big as we think they are. Well, well, I, well I think obviously we're going to get the Productivity Commission to do that work, but we're not offsetting at the moment. The government isn't offsetting every new spend because they say it's for the good of the economy. What I'm saying is, it, can you find something that, you know, they've announced that has as good a returns as this. And I haven't been able to identify anything that has as good a returns as this. And we are spending a lot. What do you think, this is just something that I've got a bunch of more specific questions about, you know, this policy versus other things we might be able to do, which we'll get to in a minute. But I'm just genuinely interested in what you think about this, right? I obviously had my kids, my eldest now is 21 and my baby is 18. When I came back to work after having them, I absolutely spent every dollar that I earned in 
childcare arrangements. Because of the nature of my work, centre-based childcare was not a viable option. We had to you know, have them looked after at home. It's just, I'm getting to expectations long. I'm, a few long preambles here, love, but anyway, bear with me. So it's sort of like I went back to work fully expecting that I would actually spend every dollar that I earned, like that that was just the price women paid 20 years ago for daring to have a job, right? But I think expectations are different now. It's kind of like now, and we'll get into this in a tick, like the sort of combination of the benefits you lose, where the cost of childcare totally eats into your income, all that sort of stuff. I mean, all the evidence suggests that this is an active barrier to women going back to work. Whereas I don't, I mean, maybe I'm weird, but I don't think it was 20 years ago. I think people just accepted that that was our lot. Yeah. So what's happened? Yeah. Well, I think what families do is they sit down and they crunch the numbers now. There's a range of them in this workforce disincentive that's built into the interaction between the tax system and the childcare subsidy is quite profound. But I think families crunch the numbers and they work out what works for them. And I think more and more we've got two people working, but more and more we have people not wanting to work not wanting to work for nothing, I think. And so there's this big financial decision that gets made. I mean, I know people that have sat around the kitchen table with the numbers, others that have done spreadsheets to work out, um, you know, where <laughs> the cost is. Maybe it's I can't do spreadsheets. Yeah, maybe it's no <laughs> spreadsheets, but it's sort of this sort of expectation that, you know, and life is really hard, like, you know, when you're balancing work and family, you know, you've got to get home cook the dinner, you know, juggle the school books and all the rest. And I think people sort of say, look, it's hard enough as it is. If I'm not getting any more wage, why would I bother? Mm -hmm. Why would I put all that pressure on myself or pressure on our family to have it potentially, you know, when I'm not getting any economic return? Now, of course, you know, I meet women that kind of Question whether they made the right decision because in a few years' time when they do try and re-enter, they're frustrated about their career progression, a whole range of things. But I think it's this thing of if I'm going to bust my gut, why am I going to do it for not no economic return? And I think that's what families are, are doing now is sort of saying, life's pretty complex. Why are we going to do this if we're not going to get a decent, decent pay I think, for I think it? You're being polite, but I think the actual answer to my question is that women are more rational than they were yeah. 20 years ago. Anyway, <laughs> never mind. Okay. So you mentioned, you referenced a second ago, the participation barriers, one Mm -hmm. of which is the tax and transfer system. So another part of the picture, obviously, if we're talking about labour market participation and incentives is is what some of those things do, right? Mm -hmm. So for example, why not look at abolishing family tax benefit part B for couples while maintaining a payment for single parents, for example. Why, like, it's sort of like, uh, this is probably a crook analogy, mm. but it's kind of like you, you, you work at the subsidy end, which is kind of like the front room, right, mm. where there's, mm. this, oh, there's a bunch of stuff happening at the back room, right, which is not so visible to people. So is that something you're open to looking at tax and transfer or, is it, or are you only going to look at the front end of this? Well, look, I guess we're looking at all the benefits that come with early childhood education. So if the threshold question is how do you encourage people back to work, 
providing high quality early education and the the combination that comes at that the easiest uh, easiest to do it is directly uh, improving the subsidy and i think when you have a look at the disincentives i mentioned the annual cap that yep. kicks in parents look at that and they average it and and they average it and they say okay well how how many days can i work before i hit that cap and i think that is a really simple way i guess when you start fiddling with family tax benefit, you do get winners and losers. You do at times hurt lower income families and we don't want to do that. And we don't want to ruin choice either. We don't want to, you know, we're not forcing well, people well, that's back another, to work. But that's, um, well, that's another issue, of course, because, well, they haven't said this because it, it's dicey territory, but perhaps your opponents could mount an argument, you know, why are you forcing women to go to work when some women just want to stay home? Absolutely. And that's why by providing higher subsidies that go directly to the childcare centre. So it is, it is, in a sense, like a Medicare system. If you use childcare, then you get the subsidy and you pay a gap fee. And I think if you think of the service like that, that you use it if you need it. If you don't need it, you don't. This isn't akin to tax cuts that everyone gets and yeah. you miss out. I think sometimes that's how the childcare subsidy has been looked at. But we need to start thinking about it like a service that's there, Parents pay a gap fee at the moment, but that gap fee and the cap on what type of support you can get is the real disincentive. And so I think if we look at it like that and look at the other benefits that come, certainly this will push up demand for early childhood education services. We know that's predominantly women. If we're looking at a stimulation of, of jobs into the future, then we've got more educators, a demand for more educators, but we've also got the benefits for children. So that's why I think directly attacking the subsidy, removing those disincentives, and if people need that service, it's there for them, is a, is a much easier way to look at it. And it doesn't, you know, when you start tackling this stuff, can provide some per perverse difficulties when you, when you tackle that, as opposed to really looking at this from a service perspective. And what about uh, another another thought bubble, right? If you want to, going back to the participation incentives, mm. if that's an overarching objective, as well as obviously health and wellbeing and development of kids, right? But talking about participation, why not make the income calculation based on the second income? rather than on the family income. Yeah, well, that's something that has been discussed. I guess where we want to go, though, is this universal access. We want to transition it. We didn't means test the NDIS for really good reasons. There was the private and the public benefit. We don't means test Medicare. Of course, in all in Medicare, in other systems, we do have a safety net that catches our most vulnerable. There is a gap fee with a service component to it. But I think we really need, in my view, we need to switch our our thinking much more to this being about a service that, you know, is good for children but also enables participation. And what about, well, you've sort of addressed it, I think, implicitly, but let's make it more explicit. Another thing that opponents will say to you is that why would you give a subsidy to wealthy people who can afford to pay childcare and this issue of sitting there with your spreadsheet, it's just non-issue, right? So why, why subsidise people who don't need a subsidy? Well, when we talk to a whole range of different families, childcare is really expensive. We're talking 
out-of-pocket costs of up to $20,000, $30,000. So the, the first thing I'd say is uh, there are lots of combinations of families that do need this support, number one. Number two, we are talking about an economic productivity measure. And so when people say, and the, the evidence shows that it is women on all in, or second wage earner, yep. predominantly women, predominantly uh, women. on all incomes that lift the benefit. And this is why business has been so on board with this. If you think about it and you are a business and you've got a worker that is just absolutely fabulous and you say, could you work more hours? And they say, I'd love to, but it's going to cost me too much. That's not good for the business as well. So I think we've re- like there is this sense that it's welfare. It's sense that this is not about economic productivity as well. And that's the argument I've been making is that if our economy grows, then that's uh, good for everyone. I tell you, not everyone's going to benefit. Not everyone has a business. Not everyone's going to benefit from the business tax write-off that the government's proposed. When roads are built, not everyone drives on those roads. They <laughs> all Women do. The Prime we, women do. <laughs> Some women do. <laughs> but, you know, we, we build a road in area. There'll be a lot of people in this country that won't benefit from Sydney Second Airport, but they are doing it because it's about economic benefit uh, for the country. And we've got to get out of seeing this as just something, an individual benefit. There is economic benefit. Well, that's that's the broad point you're making, that we've got to track towards a universal system and that involves changing mindsets like why give wealthy people subsidies. But it's still, I guess, like... Equity is not a minor issue, though. Well, I guess it's, you know, the trade-offs, as you say, it's kind of like you can rationalise to yourself we're giving, we're perhaps giving a subsidy to people who don't necessarily need it for the universal good of providing the service universally. I guess yeah. if that makes sense. And I guess sense. we never, you know what I mean? <laughs> we never ask people when they turn up in a car accident at a public hospital how much do you earn, and that will determine how much we're going to make you pay. We don't do it when you turn up at a doctor's surgery, and we don't say only certain kids get support at public schools. I mean, this is the type of mind shift we we have to make. There are some services that are seen as universally important, and there's individual benefit to those, and there's external benefit. But we don't, when we look at the Commonwealth contribution to higher education, actually say, well, let's means test you and your family before we work out what that subsidy is. And I have to say, partly, I mean, apart from the public good, there's the simplicity. I mean, you don't have every time you go to the doctor's surgery, they're not somehow working out <laughs> Getting your tax, on a chart, tax return, tax return mm, working mm. out what percentage Can of I Medicare they're going to give you yes. because it's a simple system. And I think, I think when you have a think about that, a simple universe, and at the moment there is a lot of resources uh, put into service. Australia to get your tax return, to match it with the subsidy, to check your activity, to see, you know, where you're at. We just don't do that. We, we accept that children from all backgrounds will go, to a, will go to a public school. Yes, there's a safety net like the school card. If you really are very vulnerable and you need that, you can't pay a cent. But the rest of the families are all treated equally. And I think when you think about that, rather than thinking that this is some sort of akin to tax cuts, you start to have a different viewpoint. What about, though, you've acknowledged, obviously, the more universal the system gets, the, mm-hmm. the, the greater 
the demand will pay. That's yes. just a logical yep. and obvious point, right? But then that has implications, has workforce implications. Obviously, you've got to be able to train sufficient workers, have sufficient centres, all of that sort of stuff. So again, the costs sort of, again, acknowledging the benefits, which I want to foreground in this conversation yes, yes, as yes, much absolutely. as possible, right? Because I, I'm completely persuaded by the economic logic of it. But there's there are costs then associated with training workers, takes time, takes money, building premises, et cetera, et cetera, right? Also, policy Labor took to the last federal election included a wage subsidy or uh, might, yeah, I don't think you guys yeah. called it a wage subsidy, but it was, it was like that. So first question is, is that still on the table, a subsidy for topping up childcare workers, given we should acknowledge that child, the people who look after our kids are some of the, you know, worst paid people in the country, despite the importance of the work, right? So first question is mm-hmm. subsidy there or not? Yep. And also then how do you deal with those other costs that inevitably present themselves in this sort of a model? Yeah, so in terms of supporting our early educators, there's no doubt that our early educators do not get paid, you know, um, to get paid adequately for the work they do. I think that can be said across the care economy, yep. I think. Um, Absolutely. And so you've got aged care workers. Okay. So, um, uh, you know, our policy work is still continuing, but I think there is a, in my view, there's a systemic problem, uh, disability workers, aged care workers and early educators as as an example. Look, our early educators are professionals, but so are our aged care workers. They all have, for example, they met, most are required to do a certificate three or above. So they are required to be qualified and get less than what unqualified workers mm. in our economy do. So there, I think there's a big piece of work to be done about how we actually value those workers better um, in our economy. So look, that that's my personal view at the moment. We don't have a specific policy on early educators, but I think it is a systemic problem across the care economy mm. that we will need to look at. And, you know, my colleagues and I are certainly discussing that. I think when it comes to the cost. I mean, you know, we need to train a lot of people in a lot of different jobs. And I think I, you know, in terms of centres, you know, it is a privatised market to some extent. You know, when I say that there are large not-for-profit players as well as for-profit mm. players in the market, they've responded quite quickly around demand, although, you know, sometimes there's been oversupply in some areas and sometimes undersupply. So that's certainly something we need the Productivity Commission to look at is how we transition when it comes to physical buildings. But the second is workforce. There's no doubt about it. So that's something we do need the Productivity Commission to look at. But when it comes to cost, I mean, we're training people in lots of Lots of different areas. Mm. Oh, so, sure. We don't sit around agonising about what it costs to train people in the STEM industry Absolutely. or, or you know, brain surgeons or Absolutely. whatever. We don't have these sorts of conversations, conversations. Which, again, is really deeply frustrating, I'm sure, to both you and I. Yes, right? yes. So Absolutely. It's, so, so Absolutely. It, you know, with, with that acknowledgement, right, like the whole frame of the conversation gives us both the shits, right? Fair enough. But, it's, but still, like all of this has got to add up. Now, I mean, I know obviously – we are in a different conversation, both in terms of just the crude politics of it and and also the lived reality of mm-hmm. it in terms of debt deficit and other 
things, mm. right? Obviously, that whole conversation has been reframed a bit because of yes. the fiscal intervention during the crisis and because we are in this persistent low growth, low inflation mm. environment, right? So now people, we're talking about debt. Oh, well, as long as the, your economy grows faster than your interest bill, then we're all good. So acknowledging all that. But again, these are big investments. So, I mean, is is what you're heralding that Labor will go to the next election and it's not as binary as I'm about to put it to you, but you can't avoid it. You can't avoid the question in this way, right? This is a big services investment here and that generates benefits mm. for the economy. You, the government will basically say, well, we're for tax cuts you're for government in everyone's lounge room. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, the COVID crisis has showed there is a role for government. And and I think Anthony Albanese and certainly myself have not wanted to actually shy away from that. I'm not embarrassed about that, to be quite frank. When people come to me, when my constituents come to me for a whole myriad of reasons, they're asking me for help. They are asking for government intervention. Now, of course, we you know, don't want a nanny state where, you know, um, everyone is completely government. You, you don't want to well, be in everyone's lounge room? Are you telling me you don't want to be well, there? Well, no, no. <laughs> don't have time to be in everyone's lounge room. But I don't think any of us are shying away from the Labor perspective that there's a role for government. Now, in terms of the, the cost and the taxes, I mean, the government is spending a lot of money. They're not just doing tax cuts. They are spending a lot of money. They're doing wage subsidies, um, you know. So I think this is going to be a debate. I, I think the debate's going to be um, probably framed more about who gets better bang for your buck. I hope that's how the debate is framed. And I think when it's framed like that, I hope that it, I, I, I feel confident will be off to demonstrate, then we can get bigger bang for your buck. But when I talk to people, I mean, the government might cage it like that. But when I talk to people, they're coming to government for help. They, they want us, you know, to be off to provide it. Now, that's not to run their businesses and take over their businesses and all the rest, but it is about enabling them to get on with living a better quality of life. Do you think it's easier to run that argument? You know, well, as you say, it's 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 coming to you. It's, yes. It's not... It's not that's your perception of it, right? That 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 people people are looking to governments to be a positive, you know, catalyst in their existence, right? Do you think it's easier to run that more present government line in terms of your offering, your policy offering, your set of values during or God, well, hopefully, you know, on the, slightly on the other side of the pandemic than it was in 2019? I, I do think that people are definitely looking at government for help at the moment. They've seen how important it is that governments take action, not just on the health, but the health obviously aspect has been big, but on the economy as well. And I think people do do look to governments. I mean, I must say people have been talking to me about childcare for a long time. Childcare has over the years been an election commitment on a regular basis because I think it has been a long-term problem. But I think more than ever, as people are trying to step out of their difficult circumstances to take a step up, they do want government there to be side by side with them. And I think it is it is certainly the time, I think, now when people are looking 
at government, not, you know, ruling the show or controlling everything, but being alongside them to, to support them. Just one last question. You're a psychologist, aren't you, by yes. professional yep. training? Yep. <laughs> so Not currently. Re- no, 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 I'm, I'm, not I'm registered but not practising. <laughs> well, I need to put that on the no, no, sure. Well, you'd have a fairly strong clientele around the building oh, yeah, if you yeah. were. If, <laughs> if you were. I was. Well, if I well was. I'm including me in that too. <laughs> but anyway, look, jokes aside, there'll be, I confidently predict, at least one or two women listening to this conversation who are racked by guilt about their participation in the labour market versus looking after their kids. Like I said to you, you know, 20 years ago, I was willing and able and did spend every cent I earned in order to keep myself in a job. But I am still constantly racked with guilt about whether or not I'm sufficiently present for my kids, that being the most important thing in my life. Um, So lots of people in listening to this who are thinking about childcare, not only through the prism of can I afford it, but it is, is it genuinely good for my kids? Am I a terrible mother by sending my kid off to childcare, right? You are a professional. You have some training in this area. What's your view? Look, the evidence is really clear about the beneficial aspects of childcare, but also the beneficial um, aspects of parenting. But the truth is that parents are the best judge of what's good for their kids, and you've got to have confidence in that. But certainly, the evidence about the, the importance of early education is is is. There is plenty of evidence out there. It's good for their social connection. It's good for a whole range of things. That's not to say you can outsource parenting. Or, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I wish you could, but it is beneficial. But I think, you know, if you're worried about that, you know, have a look at the literature, have a look at the information. But I, I think whatever we do, whatever we do, there are many, many women out there that are constantly guilty. I feel guilty. I feel guilty coming to work. Sometimes I feel guilty about not being present enough at home. You know, I feel, am I a good enough role model? You know, those those questions are always on, I think, all of us' minds. So I think the first thing to say, you'd be normal to feel guilty. <laughs> but, you know, the evidence really shows that there is really good benefits. And there's actually the quality standards that was br- brought in under Labor. Actually, you can go onto the My Child website and actually check how they're doing in all those critical critical areas of development if you're looking for a childcare centre. And I definitely recommend, not a lot of parents do that, but I would definitely recommend go on and have a look. The evidence really does show that there are a lot of benefits for children and and, education. And I I should say I framed that question very poorly. I mean, I I did it through a personal lens, but I I also want to acknowledge that there are a number of blokes listening to this conversation who are also wrecked by guilt and many blokes who are turning up for their families and doing more than their their fair share of of, of child raising and all of that. So, And I, I think that's why this policy sort of got into the, but as some people have said this debate is all about women. I mean, it is about women's workforce participation, but it is also about the families that sit around and they juggle things together and it's a partnership. And so, you know, supporting women go back to work actually you know, it's something that a lot of men really support as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly, and, and are increasingly participative in all Absolutely. of that sort of stuff. Absolutely. So anyway, just wanted to acknowledge yeah. that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, so much for listening. We really do appreciate it. Thank you to my executive producer, Miles Martignoni who pilots the Politics Live ship. Uh, Thank you to Hannah Izzard, who often cuts the show. We'll be back next week. 
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.